Hey Cole, another week has gone by, so are you ready for some more horror? Yes. Well, great, because like some dyslexic ribs at Chili's, we are back, baby. Oh no. <laughs> Love bug, no. <laughs> Welcome to Second to Die, a horror fiction podcast where we talk about lots of things. And sometimes horror. And sometimes horror. I'm Max. And I'm Cole. And we'll be your hosts. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. If you're new here, thank you for, I guess, giving us a giving us a, a listen. We are going to talk about a movie and a book, both from the horror genre. If you couldn't gather. And that's pretty much it. And probably make a bunch of really sexually inappropriate jokes the whole time. Most likely. Seems to be our brand a little bit. Uh, yeah, I didn't intend for it to go in that direction. But here we are. We've gone down that road. It's They're just funny. It's just kind of like, I don't know. That's the humor I, I make. It's super inappropriate. I can't help it. You're not the one who has coworkers who listen. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know. If my coworkers ever found out about this, they'd probably be entertained. For the episode for The Suffering, I literally got a text that was like, wow, there's lots of gaping holes in this one, huh? Well, we are experts in those as well. Anyway, on to the podcast. I'm two things. I feel like I have a lot to go over with because I talk a lot about the plot of this movie. And then also I've realized that like I feel like lately I'm talking like faster and faster and I'm going to try not to do that as much. But no promises. I haven't noticed, but I'm also quite used to the fact that you talk faster and faster, which is why I'm able to listen to audiobooks at double the speed without losing comprehension. No, that's true. I'm powered by coffee. Like, there was literally one time when I was doing the edits, and I was like, I think I'm playing this at, like, speed and a half, but oh no, it was just me talking. Yep. I'm very used to it by this point. Yeah. Anyways, let's let's get into this, because I need to start talking about something real. I'm doing this week... A movie from 1995 called Castle Freak. All right. I'm on board. And you may be thinking, are you reviewing a porn today? No, it's a horror movie called Castle Freak. It was directed by Stuart Gordon. People may recognize that name because he also did Reanimator, which is an excellent movie. And just a little background on this. So how did this movie come to be? Well, Stuart Gordon was preparing to work on another movie and he was visiting with film producer Charles band in his office and he noticed a poster on a wall entitled castle freak with a quasimodo like man chained to a wall being whipped by a woman he asked about it and band was like well that's a castle and there's a freak but he said that it was basically an idea with no script but if gordon wanted it he could do whatever he wanted with it as long as he maintained the concepts of a castle and a freak so he made the film for about five hundred thousand dollars which is was not a lot of money back in that day even And when people asked him why he wanted to do another low-budget movie, Gordon basically said that it would be his first film since Reanimator that he could release without a rating, that he would be given the final say in the final cut of the film, and that he had the ability to cast whomever he wanted, stating, quote, even though the budget was tiny, I had complete control. So that's why he wanted to do this. Also saying, you just need a castle and a freak is problematic. But anyway, keep going. 
Well, they call so I refer to the creature in the movie as the creature, not as the freak, because it felt weird. I don't actually think freak is like an offensive term unless you're like looking at it in terms of like carnival workers, because I feel like people used to use that for like a specific type of carnival carnival worker. Maybe I don't remember actually. Maybe I mean geek was a thing. Maybe freak wasn't a thing. I don't know. For some reason, it didn't feel right saying freak, but well, it doesn't because it was often applied to people who like had disabilities from birth and things like that oh well i got called a freak a lot in high school but then corn came out with that album freak on a leash and it was like fine you know it's cool corn with a k so reanimator obviously was kind of a lovecraftian thing and this movie as well was said to be full of lovecraft references and somewhat influenced by the short story the outsider which involves a man who leaves the dungeon for the first time in years, and everyone he sees flees in terror from him until eventually he finds a mirror and sees his own distorted body. Yikes. Yeah. And lastly, the film was shot in Italy in a castle owned by Charles Band, the producer. And the castle is... He just owns a castle. People, Some people have way too much money. And there was also a 2020 remake of this movie that I will not be mentioning anymore. So, two main cast members... Jeffrey Combs plays John Riley. He also played the lead in Reanimator. So essentially Gordon just kind of like used him again. That's very common and cool because Jeffrey Combs is great. And uh, he's been in a lot of horror and sci-fi stuff. And then Barbara Crampton plays Susan Riley, his wife in it. She, people may recognize the name and be like, what do I know that from? Well, she's best known for her role of Leanna Love on the soap opera The Young and the Restless, which is not what I know her from. We were a Days of Our Lives household, so. (laughs) She did do, weirdly enough, so she was like this soap actress. She also was in quite a few horror things, such as, I mean, she was in Reanimator as well. She was also in Chopping Mall, which is weird. And she has a cameo in Puppet Master. Oh my God, Chopping Mall? Is that like a serial killer in a mall? You know, I really wish it were. I had volleyed around the idea of doing Chopping Mall on this, but it's... People love that movie, but I don't actually love it. It's it's not a serial killer. It's killer robots in a shopping mall. That's less fun. And it's from the 80s. But it's like got this huge cult following. Like people love that movie. I think it's okay. So anyways, and then Jonathan Fuller plays the creature. Okay, we're going to get into this movie because I'm going to talk quite a bit about the plot because it's actually a pretty good plot and the movie has done quite well. I don't know. I enjoyed it. It was good. All right. So opens up. We see an old woman, and she's cutting up some bread and sausages, and she throws them on this, like, pewter plate. She's in a castle. She walks out onto the grounds, goes down some stairs into a dungeon. She finds this huddled-up figure, and then for some weird reason, she pulls out this, like, cat of nine tails and starts whipping the creature, and then, like, throws the plate of food at it, and that's about it. That's very rude. Yes. Well, she gets a dose of instant karma because she goes upstairs, has a heart attack, and dies. Good. Literally because she overexerts herself whipping this creature. Good. Then we have the opening credits. All right. We quickly learn that this movie is about John and Susan Riley and their daughter, Rebecca. They're heading up to a castle in Italy that John had inherited. And we also learn that they're having marital issues because Susan basically asks the housekeeper to prepare a second room for John like they're not going to be sharing a room. Why are they having marital issues? Well, I'm waiting. (laughs) So we learn the answer to that pretty soon with a dream flashback of John where he was drunk driving in a car with his kids and gets into an accident and ultimately their youngest son dies and Rebecca is permanently blinded. 
Oh, okay. Yep. <laughs> that'll that'll do. Well, originally, like, I, I don't know. Like, it explains it pretty quickly, but at first I was kind of like, oh, you know, they're just having marital problems. It's going to be the same old, same old, like, whatever. But then I was like, oh, no, this is pretty serious. So, mm-hmm. so that's like a dream sequence. And then John wakes up, and then all of a sudden he hears this, like, moaning in the castle. Like, this real, like, not sexual moaning, like, weird moaning. And that's probably the first sign that he should probably, like, get the actual F out of that castle. But instead, he decides to go investigate because, I don't know, he's, like, a super tough guy. So he's going to go, like, investigate the noise. And so he follows the noise around the castle. And ultimately, he ends up finding the wine cellar instead. Now, keep in mind, he's a recovering alcoholic now ever since, you know, the whole, like, killing his kid thing. Yeah. So he finds this, like, big wine cellar. And he, like, grabs one of the bottles of wine. And it's, like... Starts, like, caressing it in a really weird way. And then he's, like, licking his lips and, like, ogling it. Like, he's literally about to find out what flavor its asshole is. But then he snaps out of it and smashes the wine bottle. Because, I guess, putting it down was just, like, not cool enough. But he cuts his hand open in the process. Well, maybe if you just set things down instead of smashing them, sir. Yeah. Yeah. So clearly he's like a drama queen, right? Like, also you can smash that wine bottle, but there's literally 50 of them on the rack behind you. So I'm not sure what you thought you just accomplished. And that was probably really expensive. That just makes me think of those like destruction rooms that you can go to Mm. where you can just break shit. Oh my God. I would find that so cathartic. I have so much anger built up. Those have been around for a long time. They're called other people's houses. (laughs) Anyway, where was I? Oh, so the housekeeper finds him with his cut hand and is like helping him with it and we learn a little bit of a backstory on the previous owner who is technically i guess that it was john's mom but they call her the duchess because she owned that castle okay sure i don't i don't know i don't know what makes somebody don't you have to like rule over a land or something like a duchy i don't i don't know italian monarchies are not my strong suit i'm gonna I'll point that out right right quick so we learn that the duchess basically had her husband who abandoned her and then the legend is is that like the people in town gossiped that because he left her she they had a five-year-old son together the legend is that she killed the five-year-old son as revenge she then dismissed all her servants and lived alone and never left the castle for 42 years until she died there's a lot of similarities between your movie and my book and we'll get there (laughs) Like a lot of them. Oh, that's cool. All right. So then John and Rebecca are going to explore the castle. And they're looking just for like whatever. They find some creepy shit. They ultimately like John at one point finds the cat of nine tails. And Rebecca is like, oh, what did you find? And he's like, um, nothing. Just some junk. And that's kind of weird. Oh, my God. Did I ever tell you? Okay, so side story and i know you're trying to get through your plot i apologize it'll be cool uh kimberly and i moved in together at one point um like right before i turned 19 and in the apartment that we moved into we found two horrifying things a we found a pair of handcuffs in like the back of a top shelf of a closet and b we were cleaning the bathroom drawers before we put our stuff in because it was a really cheap apartment. So there were roach droppings everywhere. And when we pulled the like full drawer off of the thing, like off of the, the 
the track that the wheels go on, huge clumps of human hair fell out. Ooh, gross. It was a lot. Anyway, your cat and nine tails story just made me think of it. <laughs> yeah, well, okay. So it's not that crazy, although later on they'll find some some worse things in the castle. But anyway. They basically find that, and then John, like, starts to get, like, I don't know, he starts to kind of drift off and, like, ignore Rebecca, so she kind of wanders off on her own, and she starts to hear, like, a scratching. So she follows that scratching noise, and then ultimately it leads her to a cat, and then the cat, like, runs away, so she starts to follow the cat, and the cat kind of, like, leads her down into the dungeon area, into the room that we saw in the beginning, and the figure's in there, and he kind of, like, wakes up, and he's, like, all snarly and stuff. And Rebecca is outside of the room, basically, like, calling for the cat and calling for the cat. But the cat doesn't answer at this point, because the creature had woken up. And he was hungry? <laughs> well, in my notes I have, he <laughs> he woke up, and he was clearly into pleasing, because he was eating that pussy like it was going out of style. But we'll go with hungry. <laughs> Thank God. Well, so I had written that joke originally before I had, like, in the midst of watching this movie, and that'll be a real interesting thing in a scene that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Okay, so. Oh, God, please get to it quickly then. (laughs) Okay, then the creature breaks off its own thumb and escapes from the shackles, busts down the door, and now it's loose in the castle. All right. So, they're one of, to me, one of the more horrifying scenes in the movie is the creature goes up into Rebecca's room at night, keep in mind she's blind, and he's like caressing her face, and she wakes up, but she can't see anything, obviously, but she kind of hears the clanking of shackles, because the creature broke his shackle off of one wrist, but he still like got the other one with the chain attached to it on the other, so then she starts freaking out, and then the creature starts freaking out, and the creature runs away. And then John and Susan come in and they're like, what's going on? And basically they think that she's kind of like had a nightmare or something. John tells Susan that he thinks there's a ghost haunting the castle. And Susan's like not super into that idea because John is like, I think it's the ghost of our dead son. And Susan is like, no, it's not. And Susan is like, and whose fault is that, John? Well, basically, yes. She kind of is like. I mean, almost exactly, yes, is like, whose fault is that? And then is like, it's not fair that he died and you escaped from that crash without a scratch. Spill the tea, girl. Yes. So this hurts John's feelings. So what's a guy to do? He goes to the bar and gets wasted. At the bar, he ends up picking up, well, he meets what we assume is an Italian lady of the night. Her name is Silvana. She's very pretty. Takes her back to the castle and they go into the wine cellar. He is like really, really drunk at this. And then she takes a sip of wine straight from the bottle and then starts to perform like mild fellatio on the bottle. And then they start to make out. So then John ends up going down on her like a gentleman. And then they make sweet, sweet loving against the cellar wall. All the time the creature is watching them from kind of like behind some rows of like wine bottles or something. This is a weird movie. (laughs) Yeah. So then John finishes and he pulls a, okay, you have to go now. And she in Italian is basically like, yeah, you owe me money. And he's like, Oh, he didn't realize she was a lady of the night, which is no excuse. So he does pay her because he had already partaken of her services. And he's a gentleman. Correct. However, on her way out, she is captured by the creature. Not a gentleman. No, the creature is really not a gentleman. And we're going to talk about it. So she basically comes to and the creature has her chained up in the dungeon. And it's clear that he wants the same sweet, sweet loving that John got. And he tries to kiss her. 
And she's like obviously freaking out because this creature looks one like weirdly like shriveled and malformed. And then he's kind of like bandaged himself up a little bit so you can't see his full face. But his mouth is very bloody and like like his he doesn't really have like a full like cheek on one side. So it's like teeth. It looks gross. Oh, God. Yeah, he looks I mean, he looks really gross. So she, of course, is freaking out. So she grabs a wine bottle and smashes it and then like cuts his arm like prison style he does not take this very well understandably so he they basically get into a small scuffle he pushes her against the wall and then bites her nipple off oh why yes so then she's screaming and then it cuts to the housekeeper and she hears the screams so she goes to investigate and the housekeeper walks in and she's on the floor and the creature is Quite literally, eating her out. Like, eating her from the puss up. And she's still alive, but barely, and she dies very shortly after that. And the creature then bludgeons the housekeeper to death as well. You have a look of shock. I just really want a horror movie where there is a character who is a sex worker. She peddles her wares. She is paid for her services. And then she moves on. And has a lovely evening. That's all that I want. Horrible things can happen to everyone else. But I want a completely superfluous scene. Like a sex worker. Having an encounter with her last client of the night. Finishes up. Goes home. And like. Eats some leftover spaghetti with her cat. While she watches reruns of Supernatural. Like this is what I want out of life. I will never get this Max. But this is what I want. Uh, yeah. Well, I think, I mean, to be, to be truthful, like, especially like in the past, like 80s, 90s and somewhat before, I think there's this kind of like gross vibe of, in a weird way, like sex workers deserve bad things to happen to them. And so I think that's almost like a weird justification for that. Mm. I mean, that was kind of the public sentiment. I mean, it still is a little bit of the public sentiment. I know. It's so gross. Anyway, I could rant about this for a really long time. We should get back to the movie. Sex work is real work, and sex workers should be respected and protected. Anyway. I think we're kind of coming along to that, to be honest. I think, to be truthful, I think things like OnlyFans and stuff are kind of putting sex work into a new light and becoming a little bit more accepting, but laws will just take forever, especially in the South, because, oh yeah, I don't know, progress is like kryptonite to the Southern states, and I say that as somebody who's lived in them for 22 years, and it's gross. So... All right, so the police notice that Silvana has been missing because I'm guessing this is a small town, so everyone kind of knows each other. And so they go looking for her, and of course, the first suspect they find is John because she was seen leaving the bar with John. This makes sense. Anyways, they basically, like, come to the house, and the police officer is a very sexy Italian guy, and he's basically like, yeah, we last, you know, Silvana was last seen with you leaving the bar and going back into your castle, and Susan was right there and is like, Oh, really? This is the last straw for Susan. So she decides to take Rebecca and leave. And she's like, we're out of here, John. Like, F you. F this whole castle. Whatever, whatever. But then, before they can leave, Ufficiali Sexy, which is Officer Sexy in Italian, um, basically is like, no, you can't leave. We need you to make statements. Also, that's not technically how you say police officer in Italian. Just so everyone knows, it's Poliziotto. I'm aware of that, but it doesn't sound as good as officially sexy, which means sexy official. Anyways, 
that's your that's your telling lesson for today, folks. John finally puts it together that the five-year-old supposedly killed by the Duchess was never killed and is actually the creature from the castle. This is not a surprise. I don't think it's supposed to be. Okay, good. I was about to say. It I mean it's ve- it it I really don't think it's supposed to be that much of a surprise. I was just waiting for him to put it together. So he then tries to explain all this to the police officers. And they're like, yeah, we don't really believe this. And then as they're on the way out, they find the bodies of the housekeeper and Silvana. And she's, of course, like eaten in the housekeeper's bludgeon. So they're like, you, sir, are under arrest. Understandably. Yes. So they arrest John. They station two police officers to stay with Susan and Rebecca for the night. And essentially, the first police officer goes to get them some water. And he's killed. The second police officer goes to check on the first police officer and it's actually kind of a good scene where it's like he goes into the kitchen and he sees like a body under a sheet that's all bloody so he's like hmm that's weird he starts to lift up the sheet and it's not the officer it's the creature who promptly like bites the officer's face off um, nom, nom, nom. yes exactly oh it's thunderstorming the whole time too because why wouldn't it be of course i love a good dark and stormy night yes in a castle mm. Mm. perfect Then Susan is walking down the hallway. The creature knocks her out. The creature then goes into Rebecca's room and steals Rebecca and takes her to the dungeon room. The creature realizes quickly that Rebecca is blind, so he decides to be comfortable taking off his, like, sheet wrappings that have been on his face the whole time. And it reveals his face, which is, of course, like, very disfigured and very, like, monstrous. Yeah. But he ultimately in the day just wants to be loved. So he's like hugging and caressing Rebecca, but she's like not super into that. So he should probably respect her boundaries, but he does not. So then Susan comes in and she sees the creature and she offers herself instead. So she basically unbuttons her shirt because she kind of notices that the creature is like trying to be sexy with Rebecca. So she unbuttons her shirt and basically like... Tells the creature to come to her instead. And then when the creature is distracted by her boobs, she pulls out a knife and stabs him in the back. So I guess you could say she uses her secret weapon. Her sexuality. Yes, exactly. Doesn't kill the creature, obviously. So he chases them through the castle. There's a mildly acceptable chase scene. uh, Kind of a suspenseful scene where they're hiding in like an armoire and the creature is in the room, like tearing through stuff, like seeing if he can find them. Ultimately, he ends up chasing them to the roof of the castle, and right as he corners them, John shows up. He had escaped the police station, and he basically gets into a fight with the creature. It goes on for a minute, and then ultimately, the creature is about to kill Susan and Rebecca, and John grabs the chain that's still attached to the creature's wrist, jumps off the castle roof, and the creature is killed in the fall, and John is basically killed in the fall. There's enough time for Susan to run down so that we can have this, like, in the rain moment of I love you, I love you too. We've all made amends. Like it's it's okay that you killed our son because now you're dying and you saved our lives. And that is that. That's the end of the movie. What? Did I say something? Oh, no. Just the you killed our son, but it's okay. Yeah. I mean, it, it obviously is. So the, the conflict between them is a little bit more drawn out in the movie. And so it's obviously this moment of, okay, I finally forgive you, but it's really because he's dying and he also saved their lives. So that's probably part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So quick final thoughts in this movie. It's actually quite good. The dialogue is actually very good. The acting is great. The horror in it is really well done. It's very gory and it's very like intense. 
the scene of like killing Silvana and like the whole like literally like eating her vagina is as shocking as you would think. And it's kind of out of nowhere. Like, I don't know. It was almost like Texas Chainsaw Massacre levels of disturbing. But the rest of the movie was a little bit more like plot forward movie as opposed to just like constant in your face shock. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know. At least it disturbed me. And like when he bites her nipple off, like it's like graphically done and it, it looks really fucking crazy. All in all, this movie is actually quite good. There was an issue where the studio was having financial difficulties and it was unrated. So it did not get a theatrical release. It was released straight to video not because of the quality of it or anything like that. So it didn't, I mean, it was, it was received. Okay. The, the, um, critics of it were actually okay with it, but it didn't get a lot of popularity, I think because of the straight to video release. And if people haven't seen this movie, they should probably check it out. Cause if you're a fan of like the old sort of 90 style horror movies, this is a good one. I don't know. I thought it was incredibly well done. Yeah. It sounded good. A little wild. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely wild. It, I'm, in a weird way, part of me was like, maybe I should watch the remake. But then I like, <laughs> I went and like looked up a little bit on the remake. And first, it doesn't take place in Italy. It takes place in like um, Albania or something. And I was like, oh, that's weird. Never mind. F this shit. So anyways, that's Castle Freak. You should definitely give it a try if you haven't heard it. If you liked Reanimator, then you definitely will like it because obviously like similar styles because made by the same person. So there's that. Now tell me what you're going to talk about. All right, Peaches, I feel like I literally say this every week, but I've got something a little different for you today. This week, I'm going to tell you all about the 2019 book, While You Sleep, by Stephanie Merritt. So this book is marketed as a gothic thriller. So I was actually kind of like nervous going into it because I didn't like thriller is such a big genre right now and it's not horror. It's more like mystery. And I've done horror-adjacent books in the past, and I was always just a little disappointed with them, and I felt like it did not make for very entertaining episodes. Some were, like, fantastic reading experiences, but when it comes to a horror podcast, I feel like outright horror is more necessary. That said, I went into this book expecting to have to have the there are many different types of horror conversation, but was pleasantly surprised when it held its own. The cover is meh. I'm not going to lie. It's a little meh. It was done by a design studio called Studio Gearbox, and it is literally just a stock image of a house in the country and the hair from the stock image of a woman, and that's about it. And I guess meh isn't right. Like, it's not bad. I just, I don't know. I feel like there's usually a little something else. It's okay. It's a gloomy sky. Yeah. If I saw it, I wouldn't be like, oh, yes, this looks like. I wouldn't think it's a horror book. I can tell you that much. Yeah. There's just, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, let's go on to the blurb. On an isolated Scottish island, the McBride house stands guard over its secrets. A century ago, a young widow and her son died mysteriously there. Just last year, a local boy, visiting for a dare, disappeared without a trace. For Zoe Adams, newly arrived from America, the house offers refuge from her failing marriage but her peaceful retreat is disrupted by strange and disturbing events, nighttime intrusions, unknown voices, and a constant sense of being watched. 
The locals want her to believe that these incidents are echoes of the McBride's dark past. Zoe is convinced the danger is closer at hand and all too real, but can she uncover the truth before she is silenced? Bum bum. You can see some of the similarities here. Failing marriage. Does this take place in, in Shetland, your new favorite place? It's not in Shetland, but it is on just like a random Scottish island. Um, I do actually mention that in my little next part. <laughs> okay. uh, I was just going to say, off the bat, you know, this is up my alley. Haunted house? Yes, please. Isolated island? Yes, please. Isolated Scottish island? Absolutely. I've been obsessed with Scotland ever since I started knitting. Super excited. <laughs> yeah. That sounds cool. Anyway, let's jump right in. Heads up, gentle listener. While I'm not going to give away major plot, there are spoilers ahead. This book is lightning fast to read, so if you are interested, go to your local library and read it real fast. As always, I will be here when you get back. Now, moving on. As we know, from the blurb, Zoe is seeking sanctuary from her marriage, which seems to be on the rocks, so she leaves her son with her husband and gallivants off to Scotland to paint at a beautiful, secluded Victorian house on a cliff. Because that's how we handle our problems here. That sounds okay to me. Except painting. Mm, I mean, it's better than like a yoga retreat, right? Uh, I like yoga and I hate painting. So (laughs) Cole took me to yoga one time in my entire life. This was so early into when we were seeing each other. And I was like, yeah, I'm never doing that again. Yeah, Max was super angry. He didn't like it. I would. It was back to back with another class, like another exercise class. And I was already tired and... I am like very non-flexible. I'm a very big non-flexible person and everything that they told us to do, I was just like, I can't fucking do this. And I got more and more frustrated as the class went on. And by the end, I was literally full out rage. Like people say yoga is like relaxing and calming. And for me, it was literally like channeling my rage into like a like very intense ball and like storing it inside of me and I could not get rid of it. That's what I do with all my emotions. (laughs) anyway we meet several characters on our first night in scotland we meet mick who is the owner of the local pub with his wife Kay. they also own the mcbride house that she is staying in we meet charles joseph which is two first names and that annoys me he is a crotchety old man who owns the local bookstore and has a black lab companion we also meet an I looked up like a million pronunciations for this, and I saw a lot of different ones. But the one that I saw the most was Anak, which is A-N-N-A-G. It's like Gaelic Anna, basically. But oh. it, there's just kind of like a sound at the end of it. Also, side note, I totally forgot until you just said that. I forgot to do our little correction. Oh, yeah. I might have to do it at the beginning of the next episode as well, but... Somebody, basically, I had been doing these films for, I did a couple of these films, Frankenhooker and Mother's Day, and I had been saying that they were from Trauma Studios. It has been pointed out to me that that is actually pronounced Trauma Studios, which is crazy because I don't ever read it, but that is 100% the correct pronunciation. So there's my first correction that I've ever done. And thank you for bringing it to my attention. Yes. Thank you, Steve. Also, Steve mentioned that uh, the heirloom, I had said that the author was Thomas Luke. That is a pseudonym for Graham Masterton, which what annoys me is I knew that because it's actually the name that's listed on like the Goodreads listing for that book. And I still didn't even think to put it in there. And frustration. 
But still, thank you. I We do actually enjoy getting corrections from people. We don't like being incorrect. And please be nice. Steve was nice. Please be nice. We have feelings. No, that no. I definitely appreciated it. I had meant to do that at the beginning of the episode, so it sucks that it's mid-episode. But either way, it's out there, everybody. Let's move on. Anyway, going back. So we've got Anuk, and she is like the barmaid with a bad attitude. She's also like a teenager, but whatever. It's a really small Scottish town, so that's fine. Oh, and we meet Edward. He is the local teacher. So we meet a lot of people. It's like a character dump shoved like right in your eyeballs. The other main important-ish part of this is that Kay sings a song. It's this really beautiful Scottish ballad that I'm not going to insult people by trying to pronounce the name. It's like super mournful and whatever. Anyway, that night, Zoe has a dream where an invisible lover ties her to her couch and eats her out until she comes thunderously. Mm. Good for her. It's the oral sex episode. Yeah, basically, you were like making eating out references, and I'm like, oh my god, same. There's a lot of it in Castle Freak. Like, oh, well, some good, some bad. There was plenty in this one, which I do have to say, my dreams are either reliving my childhood trauma or absolute nonsense. So good for her. <laughs> Congratulations, <laughs> ma'am. I always have really weird, intense dreams, and I usually wake up and explain them to Cole, and he's like, your dreams are, are outrageous. I usually don't remember my dreams. When I sleep, it's literally like I just blink. No. And I wake up and my alarm's going off. She's a little disconcerted when she wakes up actually on the couch, completely naked and like still orgasming, but shit happens. I'm disconcerted by the fact that she is described as meowing, mewling, mewling, as mewling with pleasure, which just makes me think of a cat and I hate it. I hate it. They use that in romance novels, too, because as I mentioned regularly, I really, really love romance novels. And in love scenes, it'll always be like, he quieted her mules of pleasure with a kiss. And I'm like, no, it just makes me think of a cat. Like, it makes me think that she's just sitting there having an orgasm going, meow, meow, meow. And I'm pretty sure that's not how it works. Yeah, I mean... That word does kind of evoke imagery, like feline imagery. I don't know what the etymology of that is, but it does kind of evoke that, which is probably more of a reference to like women being these like delicate feline creatures. I don't know. I don't know. I looked it up just to make sure that mewling didn't mean like something different, like howling or Mm -hmm. some shit. And literally the example was the mewling of a baby kitten. (laughs) Like that was the example on the internet of that word in a phrase. Anyway, I hate it. Actual scary stuff that isn't just me judging her for making cat noises when she has an orgasm. Uh, She thinks she sees a figure outside the windows of the living room, like out on the cliffs, which is extra disconcerting because she sleepwalked in there, stripped naked, folded her clothes, sat down on the couch, and then started orgasming. So this person saw. Well, what are you going to do? Yeah, you shouldn't look in people's windows. Um, I used to do it all the time. I saw a couple having sex, and I'm like, "Mm, never doing that again. She also hears scratching from the front door, which is mm, pretty standard. And then a ghostly voice singing the song that Kay had been singing earlier in the tower. Because it's like a Victorian house with like the little turret. Oh, yeah, yeah. But the door is locked. It won't open. Of course. So the next morning, Mick gives her an actual tour of the house and like shows her where the switchboard is. Like the, 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 the power switch thing. Mm-hmm. What's that called? 
Like a circuit breaker? Yes, that sort of thing. Just like little things like that. But when they go to the tower, it opens. Oh my goodness, it's not locked anymore. And obviously there's no sign of anyone up there. So she decides that she's going to go and visit Charles at his bookstore where he gives her some of the backstory. I'm going to go ahead and lump a lot of it together here. She learns it in like three or four sit downs with Charles. Mm -hmm. So there once was a woman. Her name is spelled A-I-L-S-A. Don't know how it's pronounced. Again, Gaelic is really weird. I'm just going to call her Ailsa. Ailsa? Sure. Ailsa. Anyway, if you know, let me know. I would like to know. She had moved up to the area to be with her husband, Mr. McBride. He was really, really into occult shit, apparently. So it was like early 1900s. So on brand with that whole like spiritualism. Oh, yeah. That that trend. Yeah. So Charles suspects that she might have been possessed. Well, 11 months after McBride died, Elsa gives birth. And that math doesn't add up. (laughs) Oh, boy. She became a recluse with her son. Another similarity. And then eventually her son vanished and her body was found. So everyone thinks that she killed her son and then killed herself. So as Zoe is leaving the bookstore, it's raining really heavily. So she decides to wait out the rain with Edward. Which is fine. She doesn't know him, but she's just going to hang out in his house. Anyway, he tells her more about the above story, but I lumped it together. So it was all already kind of up there. But also talks about a boy named Ian who had gone missing at the McBride house after going up there and going inside on a dare from Robbie, who is Anuk's uh, younger brother. Edward starts playing his violin because I guess that's what you do when you have a thing for the married American woman who's visiting by herself without her husband. But when he plays the song from the night before, she freaks out. Because she recognizes it. Yes. And heard like the ghost voice singing it. So she just like panics and flees in the rain on her bicycle and ends up lost. She sees the figure of a hooded woman in the distance and she tries to reach her. But then like she can't find the woman. And then Mick shortly after picks her up and she's like, I think I saw a woman out here. Maybe she was a shepherdess or a crofter. And Mick's like, uh, no, there's nothing out in this direction. Hmm. So later she has another dream. And this one is even spicier. <laughs> she has a dream that she is in Ailsa's body. And a shadowy figure is like in the corner. And there's a naked woman strung up in front of her. Like, but she's seeing her from behind. And then she proceeds to cane the living fuck out of the naked woman. All the while talking about how, um, how do I phrase this in a classy way? She's getting a wetty from doing the caning, which is fine. Caning is a totally viable fetish. I'm not here to king shame anybody. Sure. But then, like, the naked woman turns, and it's her. Bum, bum, bum. And then she wakes up. So she's caning herself in somebody else's body. Yes. Like, she's in someone else's body caning herself. Sure. Okay. Which is fine. Um, After she startles awake, deeply aroused... She sees that her computer is connected to Wi-Fi, which is weird because Mick is like, there's no Wi-Fi out here. But before she can figure out what's up, she gets a Skype call from her son. And it's just lots of like, why did you leave, mommy? Why did you leave? And then it cuts out. Hmm. So the next day-ish, I the timeline is a little weird. Like a couple days will pass, but the story just kind of like picks up and keeps going. 
She decides to go swimming, skinny dipping specifically, but she gets caught in a riptide, which I think I've mentioned before on this podcast. I've been caught in one and they are terrifying. Anyway, thankfully, she accidentally left her scarf at Edwards and he brings is bringing the scarf back coincidentally at the exact same time, notices that she's in a riptide and dives in and saves her. That's very coincidental. It, it worked out pretty handily that way. While they're drying off, they hear a bang in the living room, and it's a seagull that has fallen out of the chimney, and it's thrashing about with a broken wing. And so Edward takes it outside to put it out of its misery. And while assessing the fireplace damage, Zoe finds Ilsa's diary, like hidden away. Sure. And here is where I'm going to start glossing over the actual like plot plot of the book. So the book is still pretty new and it's still showing up on a lot of suggested reading lists for like thrillers and um, also horror lists that take place in isolated areas, which is where I found it. And given that it's a thriller, the twists and the surprises of the actual plot itself are the appeal. And I don't really want to give those away in case any of our gentle listeners want to read it. I am, however, going to talk about the rest of the spooky bits. So. They read some of the journal, which has some sexy bits in it, and then, bam, they're making out. And he's all like, ooh, yes, I love a cougar. And she's all <laughs> like, ooh, you're so young, but you're into me, and I love it. <laughs> Literally the entire time, she's like, he's so young. Oh, God. Not necessarily being turned on by it. It's more of like a, he's so young, this is a bad idea. And then proceeds to like sure. continue playing tonsil hockey. Then she sees the face of ghost Ilsa in the mirror and that kills the mood pretty quickly. Yeah. Ghosts tend to do that. Unless the ghost is Patrick Swayze. I was about to say, (laughs) there's a whole movie about a time that the ghost does not do that. So we get some more plot the next day, more like important for the book, but not important for horror happens. Yada, yada. For the purposes of this podcast, I will reveal that Charles believes that McBride summoned an incubus to impregnate his wife because he was impotent. So I guess that factors in, like, if the house is haunted by an incubus, that's why she's like... Oh, being all sexy. Mm-hmm. And in the dreams, but then also, like, uncontrollably making out with Edward. That seems like a terrible idea also. I can't have kids, so I think I'm going to summon a demon to impregnate my wife. Like, that that's where you go? Not fertility clinic? Like... Okay, it was the 1920s. But, oh, because those are the other people. For some reason, I was, like, thinking, like, it was the modern times. Yeah, okay, okay. Zoe gets home that night, and the power's out. She sees that she has a message on the answering machine from her husband, Dan, which bothers me because the power's out. I don't know, maybe battery backup? We can suspend the disbelief a little bit. Actually, I do think my parents' answering machine has, has, because my parents still have an answering machine. Has a battery backup. Now that I think I remember that. My parents have one too, but a lot of that is for my mom's business. My parents still have one, but all of the phone calls forward to their cell phones. So it doesn't actually make <laughs> sense to have it. I think they just leave it out. My parents are really big pack rats. Like yeah. I, not quite hoarder level, but I feel like we might get there soon. Anyway, getting away from that really bleak topic of conversation. Uh, She has a message from Dan, her husband, and spoiler alert, so skip ahead like 15 seconds if you need to. He reveals that she has not seen her therapist for months and didn't take her meds with her on this trip, and that's the first we're hearing about that. Also, 
the dead gull is mysteriously inside of her house and the head was chopped off and put in her refrigerator. No, thank you. Gross. Then her computer goes off. It's a Skype call from her son again. And again, here, there should be no Wi-Fi. There should be no power. And Caleb goes, Mommy, I don't like the person behind you. And she pieces the actual full frontal fuck out of the house like a smart person. Yeah, that's pretty creepy. I like that, though. Yeah, no, it was actually like I read it and like shivered a little bit. It was really well done because it started out with the same like, why did you leave? When are you coming back? Da, 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 da. And then he goes completely silent and she's like, what's wrong? What's wrong, sweetie? What's wrong? And he goes, I don't like the person standing behind you. I mean, can you imagine if you're on like a video call with somebody and they were like, who's behind you? And But you thought you were alone? Fuck that. I don't want to imagine it. Oh, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. Mm-mm. Nope. So, the next night. Oh, she like leaves and she stays with Mick and Kay. The next night, Edward is going to come spend the night at her place. But she blacks out before he gets there. And she has one last dream. And in this, she is Ilsa as McBride is summoning the Incubus, who then has his sexy way with her. Um, It's like content warning. It's a little assaulty. So be prepared for that if you do read it. She wakes up clutching an empty bottle of wine with aching genitals to hear. Aching genitals? Yes. I'm sorry. Like, that's actually what happens. Like, she wakes up clutching an empty bottle of wine and notices an ache in her genitals. These are just, they're not related. She wasn't, like, doing anything with the wine bottle. It's just what it was. And I wrote that in my script that succinctly, and I didn't think it would make me laugh, but it did. (laughs) To hear crashing in the basement. Long story short, it's Robbie. He is rummaging around down there. She decides to let him stay in one of the other bedrooms that night because it is storming and he rode his bike or took like a motorbike sort of thing. The next morning, though, he is gone. And when she goes to town, she finds out that he never showed up again. And the police immediately suspect her because, well, every country has small towns. Mm -hmm. And that's actually where I'm going to leave off the plot because there's not a lot of horror Beyond that, the rest of it is like resolution of the thriller aspect of things. Interesting. But the horror was really good. So if you like horror and you like thriller plot lines, this book, like 100%, go for it. Really good. Would you say that it had some surprises for you? Because I feel like non-predictable suspense is also is always like so good. I'll get to that when I do my rating. Okay. Actually, I want to like say one last quick little like, thing and then i'll get to it if you do have specific questions about the remainder of the plot or don't feel like reading the rest of the book to find out and want to hear me say it in a quippy manner feel free to hit me up on our instagram or email second at gmail.com and we can have a chat about it it really is very good though so i highly recommend just like giving it a try reading it oh my god i just had the best idea for like a mini episode it could just be called Cole and Max spoil books and movies, and it would just be like 10 minutes of us telling the endings to various books and movies that we know. Or books and movies that we've done oh, that yeah. we haven't spoiled the endings for. But just like really quick things like, like he was dead the whole time. Like the stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, let's continue. Let's continue. God. Um, so that brings me to my rating. I'm going to give this four out of five seagull heads chilling in, in the fridge for later. The only reason it's not a five star is, well, there's kind of like two reasons. 
there are a lot of like, my, that's coincidental. Mm. Like Edward coincidentally showing up, that sort of thing. Also, the, you know, you asked if the suspense surprised me. The horror, a lot of the horror stuff caught me off guard. Mm -hmm. As far as the actual twists, like the thriller twists, I guessed a majority of them. Ah. Not necessarily immediately, though there are some that I guessed by like chapter two. Not necessarily immediately, but I don't think there was a single twist that I didn't guess by the time I got to the end. So when I was reading the resolution of the book, it's like, okay, thank you for confirming. I was right, as usual. Like, that sort of thing. So that's the only reason it's not a five. You know, whatever. The scary parts are scary, and we're here to talk about horror. So overall, very good book. Okay. Well, we haven't talked about a lot of people being killed in it, but I'll still ask if you would die if you were in while you sleep. I'm going to say no on the dying because, like I said, it's just not that kind of book. Uh, there are a couple of characters who die on the cliffs, but I'm not going to stand on the edge of a cliff. So, mm. so I'm going to say no on that one. Would you die in Castle Freak? Hmm. Potentially so. I mean... First of all, if I if somebody told me you inherited an Italian castle, I would 100% be moving out there. Though, if I the first night, if I heard like moans and stuff in the castle, I'm not 100% sure that I would be super chill about staying there. So I might leave, and if that and in that case I probably wouldn't be, but I could also see myself being like, whatever, it's an old castle and this is a castle and I want to stay here, and then the creature would probably kill me. Shit happens. Yeah, it really does. We all make mistakes. <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for listening, folks. If you would like to find us on social media, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and Goodreads and also apparently on YouTube if you want to just start listening to us there. If you listen to us on YouTube, hi, we completely (laughs) forgot that we had YouTube episodes (laughs) going up. It's literally just audio recordings, but then we saw that we had a couple subscribers and people were liking the videos. So thank you. We love and appreciate you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I, we recently realized that our podcast is auto-publishing to our YouTube channel that I had set up a long time ago, but didn't actually, I thought I had actually disabled it, but I hadn't, but we're actually getting views and listens on YouTube, which is great. I'm glad people, I mean, listen to us however you want. I don't care. It's your life. Just listen to us. We both need lots of attention. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And if you want to email us any, well... Really anything, questions, comments, concerns, corrections like a lot of people have. We really do appreciate them. And we will answer all of the emails, even if it takes us a minute. And by minute, I usually mean maybe a day or two. That is at secondtodiepod at gmail.com. Also, people have been inquiring. I'm very, very close to having a Patreon set up. So we should get that set up and maybe even some merch. It's, it's all on the horizon. Obviously, it's been a very busy time for both of us in our careers as the world is opening back up again. But we are getting... Uh, I'm I'm trying to put some more effort into this. So we're trying to get that ball rolling. Yes. And remember, if you can't be first, you can always be second to die.